As a friend of mine says a lot, top of the morning to you. Good, good to see you too, Jeff. (laughs) Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 9, and as we continue to worship this morning through the Word, uh, Monty started last week with a reminder about what, what this time is about, about the Word of God. And so I thought it would be good for us to just stay with that theme. Sometimes we take it for granted. Here's how John Stott speaks about the Word of God and our need for it. He says, we must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undo our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. And so take just a minute to ask the Lord to do that to each of you in your specific situation this morning. Just take a second to do that. Lord, we do ask that you would do all that in us and more this morning. We are so grateful for your word. And everyone said, amen. In Webster's Dictionary, it defines the word transition this way, a change or shift from one subject to another. Now, I give you that definition of a simple word that we're very familiar with, transition, because our text in Acts 9, 32, 43 is what is called a transitional passage from one subject to another. The big picture here is this. The first six chapters of the book of Acts, its main character was Peter. And then in Acts 7, 8, and 9, it transitioned, if you would, with a focus on Saul to Paul. And we have worked through his conversion over the last couple weeks. And now we come back to the end of chapter 9. And starting in... Chapter 10 through 1225, the transition will happen again back to Peter. And so Luke, our writer, the author of the book of Acts, has given us these 12 verses to sort of signal there's a shift here, if you would. But then we always say at Fellowship Bible Church that context is king when unpacking the scriptures, and in some cases, more than other cases. And I think this morning... Context is really king, and it brings us to Acts 9.31, which was the last verse of Monty's passage last week, and here's what it says. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So as we read that, we, we got to get some clues. We have to make some observations because there's some crucial and critical clues in that one little statement, that one little verse that's going to lead us forward as we hit the rest of the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 10 next week. The first is just a basic question of observation looking at a text. Why was there now peace with the people of God. Any answers? Saul had been nullified. The threat of Saul had been nullified by, as Monty said last week, by the grace of God. So he's no longer torturing the church. 
Second observation, how is the church growing? How is the church multiplying? Look, back in the day, there was no church hopping. And the vast majority of churches that grow, or a lot of churches that grow, often grow from getting transitions from one church to another. But that can't be happening here because the, the church is scattered. They're growing because they're doing evangelism. Believers are coming to Christ and they're sharing the gospel with other people as brand new Christians. The third observation I make is this, and, 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 and this is more looking at us first, and that is just human tendency. Human tendency is when there's peace and comfort in our world, what do we do? We relax, we rest on our laurels, and here's the deal, churches can do that too. And when they do that, they become inbred and they rot from the inside out slowly but surely. Again, two sermons in a row, I'm mentioning Nick Saban. So if you're an Alabama fan, applaud me, okay? And if you're not, give me some grace. But when Nick Saban's teams would just get so celebrated and encouraged by reporters, they're so great. What did Nick Saban call that? Rat poison. And it's rat poison for the church as well to rest on our laurels. And it's not happening here, thank goodness. And it's not happening here, but it's certainly not going to happen once we hit chapter 10. And fourthly, thought of this big picture. If you knew nothing of the Bible's message and you had read the Bible from Genesis to Acts chapter 9, it would be so easy to conclude that God only loves the people of Israel. And folks, this is no small conclusion because again, we're going to see the full scope of God's love for all people next week. So this transition, if you would, of our 12 verses is important for two reasons. It shows us this transition back from Paul to Peter, and then it's a transition from God saving not only the Jews, but also saving the Gentiles. Here's how one writer sort of summarized these 12 verses. He says, the power of God that we see in Acts 9, 32 through 43, sends a signal to its readers. What is that signal? That same power is about to be unleashed on a pagan Gentile world, and the world would never, ever be the same because of it. So what you see in these 12 verses is the unlimited power of God, and it is that that is at the very root of the gospel explosion that is about to come. And Peter wants us to know, or Luke wants us to know, who God is, and part of who he is is the God of unlimited power. So there's no doubt here Luke is teaching us the truth about God, which is simply theology. But in doing so, we get to that root source. So there'll be no doubt who is the author behind the saving of the Gentiles. So in light of that, let us look at this two double miracle here, if you would. The first one, the healing of Eunice. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Leda. There he found a man named 
Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, because the church, context again is king, is experienced in peace, Peter feels the freedom to leave the surrounding area of Jerusalem that's been under persecution and take off on his sort of itinerant preacher trip, much like Jesus did. And he goes up the coast to a group of Christians who had come together at a town called Leda. It's about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, certainly to encourage them, to shepherd them in their new faith. Uh, the vast majority of them were fugitives who had fled the persecution in Jerusalem. But what we know that in Acts 8.40, Philip had come through and Philip was called what? Philip the Evangelist. So no doubt there's some people in this small community of believers that could have come to Christ with him. And, and then Luke the physician specifically tells us this man has been bedridden for eight years, a paralyzed man. Now, being paralyzed is... I can't imagine, and I've always said this to Jenna, having a chronic disease is just so hard. And to be paralyzed is mind-boggling tragic. But to be paralyzed in the first century is on a whole other level. Flat on his back, no wheelchairs available, completely helpless, no professional rehab, no hospitals, no surgery that might could help, no medications, no cars with lifts to help them, completely at the mercy of others, and really having to, in that society, live off the giving and the alms of the community around them. And, and, and in verse 34, Peter says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. It's interesting that verb is in the present tense, meaning this is not a process, right? We go to the doctor, we get healed. You, I just got off 60 days of antibiotics. Yes, I did for an eye infection. And it took a process. But there's no process going on here. There's a snap of a finger. It's an instantaneous healing. Luke wants us to know that. But notice also, there's nowhere does it suggest Peter is doing any kind of healing. Peter is not putting up a big banner saying, come to the Apostle Peter's revival where everyone will be healed. Calvin puts it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit directed Peter's tongue and stirred his heart to do this. Then Peter commands the man to do what? In some ways, every single mom dreams of. It's certainly what my mom dreamed of, and it's what my wife dreamed of. He says, get up and make your bed. <laughs> Moms, you can now claim to your children that it's biblical to make their bed, and here's your proof passage, okay? Use that how you see fit. But folks, let's unpack really how how profound this is. One second, you're unable to move for eight years. And in a twinkling of an eye, you not only get up, but you're, you walk, you fold your bed, your muscles are not atrophied. 
You need no therapy. You are in full health as if you had never been paralyzed at all. You know, I've had two knee reconstructions. And back in the day when they did a knee reconstruction, they didn't do it through a scope. They put a big old 10, 12 inch uh, cut on you and they, they put your leg in a cast. Within a week of a 10 days, they would have to change the cast because my thigh, which I was playing college football, was pretty massive, had turned to about the size of my forearm. That's how quickly we lose it, but not here. The bottom line here is this is a small community. They have seen this man. They have helped this man for years. And now he rolls up his mat and walks away. You know the celebration and the euphoric energy and vibe in that community was absolutely insane. And then verse 35 is typical in scripture, gives us the result. The miracle provides a bridge, the text tells us, for the gospel. And what we, what we don't want to do is we, we don't want to sell that short. We see this often, not only in the book of Acts, but in other places in scripture, where God performs miracles and then God uses it to, to identify who he is and give proof for who he is and people trust Christ. But at the same time, it's, it, it doesn't happen all the time. There are actually miracles happen in the Bible where people don't believe. Remember Pharaoh? How many miracles did he see? I think it was 10. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that right, Rob? Biblical scholar in our, on our staff there. And you know what? His heart didn't change. What well, did change? It changed in the wrong direction. But here, what the text tells us is that Jesus' healing power then opens the door, becomes a bridge or springboard to save folks. So as that's happening, though, at the same time, there's something happening in another town not too far away. Look at verse 36. Let me read this part to us. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Anyone remember a passage in the Old Testament where there was a boat and a well and a man who fled from the presence of the Lord? Anybody remember that? Who was that? Biblical scholars. Thank you. What city was that in? Where? Joppa. 
That's where we are in our text today. Joppa is another coastal town, about a three-hour walk from Lida. And here in verse 36, we get introduced, it says, to a disciple named Tabitha. That's her Aramaic name. And she's called Dorcas in Greek. And interesting, her name translates gazelle. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to choose Tabitha and gazelle every time over Dorcas. My encouragement is do not name your daughters Dorcas, all right? They would get brutalized all through school, right? I, is your name Dorcas? Oh, thank goodness. I thought you were nodding your head. I was like, oh, no, I... I have messed up, which is not unusual. <laughs> what the text tells us about this lady is phenomenal. She was overflowing with kindness and generosity and service to this little body of believers, and maybe even one guy said unbelievers alike. Throughout the community, servants like this, though, as we know, I think they typically get overlooked or underappreciated in a church until they die. But man, what a blessing to a church these kind of people are. This, this behind-the-scenes sweet fragrance of Christ, of serving and meeting tangible needs. Now, obviously, in the first century, the widows that it speaks of, they were out gov without government subsidies. They were dependent upon certainly charity of the people in the community. And we see here that Tabitha is giving of her time and talent to do what? To care for them, to make dresses for them. James, the half-brother of Jesus, puts it this way. He says, this, what she's doing, is pure and undefiled religion before God to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And we also see that Tabitha gets sick. And she dies. And you know what? This wasn't uncommon in the day. No modern medicine, one, something very small could turn into something bad and kill you. The average lifespan was 35 to 40 years old, although many lived older than that. But that was average. So it wasn't unusual, but it's still heartbreaking. And the text sort of paints that picture for us. Two men are sent to fetch Peter. He was 10 miles away. Apostle Peter's in town. He's healing people. He knows Jesus. He's an apostle. Go get him. We love this woman. And Peter came to where they had the body of Tabitha. Up in an upper room. Sound familiar? Upper room? In a home? Now, Jewish tradition would say this body was washed and clean place in the upper room, but certainly was cold and stiff, and she was dead. And I got to agree, I read this week, and most scholars said this, and I'm no scholar at all, but I totally agree. When Peter, those two men approached Peter, there's no way, no way that he thought, oh, they want me to come do a funeral service. <laughs> he knew exactly what they were asking, they wanted him to come to be in the presence of this woman they loved and ask the Lord Jesus to raise her from the dead. Verse 39 shows us what's happening here. It says, all the widows stood beside him weeping. 
Peter weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Look, it's an emotional scene. It's a moving scene. The widow women are weeping. They're holding up the clothes. They're, they're crying out. They're in grief. They're in mourning. It's got to be wild. And as a human, there's no doubt that Peter is touched by this. He is moved by this scene. And so what does he do? He has everyone leave the room, the text tells us. He kneels in prayer. He turns and he faces this cold, dead, stiff body. Here's how Calvin speaks to this scene. He says, it is unreasonable to turn to face the lifeless body and address it unless he plans to ask the Lord Jesus to demonstrate his unlimited power. Key word for where this whole narrative of the church is going next week. To raise the dead. And then Peter says two simple words. Tabitha, arise. I love verse 40. So she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And I even love, sort of, lo I love this scene right here. She opens her eyes. Peter, no doubt, he opens his eyes when he hears her from praying. And now they're eyeball to eyeball. And one of the questions I thought I want to ask when I get to heaven, I got a whole list of them. What did they say to each other? Right? So only my imagination now. Maybe Peter said, yo, what's up? That's what I would have said. Peter might have said, sorry, sorry to wake you, but not sorry, you know? <coughs> Tabitha might have said, you know it's impolite to stare at someone, don't you? I mean, but here's what happens. Peter then helps her up. And man, I really love this. Peter, this is how I would put it. You would say he calls for all the believers, but I would say he hollers for them. Don't holler sound better. Hey, y'all come on in now. She ain't dead no more. This is what the literal Greek text says. I love this. He presented her living. <laughs> Man, verse 42 just tells us the rejoicing had to be unhinged. Weeping in sorrow had turned to weeping in celebration. <laughs> I think we need a friendly reminder here comes from Jesus in John 5, 25, where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I think you and I understand that what is true in the physical realm can and also many times is true in the spiritual realm. The spiritual dead, when they hear the voice of the Son of God, they come alive in Christ. It's what happened to you if you know Christ. It's what happened to me. And we just saw it happen to the Apostle Paul earlier in Acts 9. Verse 42, again, we have the results. Jesus raises Tabitha from the dead through Peter. And then that will be a launching pad if you would. It's the last scene 
before God's unlimited power unleashes itself on the Gentiles. So it is a launching pad to raise, raising every Gentile to life who has ever come to faith in Christ for the last 2,000 years. If you want to draw a line, timeline, back to the root of where that power is and when it was launched in full force, we're at it right here. And then lastly, in verse 3, or verse 43, like a tag on, the text tells us Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with a guy named Simon, a tanner. And I'll get to more on that in a minute. So, we have transitioned. That's what this text is, the transitional text. It's taken us from Saul, Paul, to Peter. And then it's going to take us from Peter to the Gentiles coming to Christ. But what do you and I need to do? Where do we need to transition? Yes, Jesus has used Peter in this transitional text to demonstrate his power over sickness and death. Right before Jesus unleashes that same power to the hearts of Gentiles around the world for the first time in all of history. We get that, hopefully, by this point of the text. But what else do you and I need to get about this text that applies to us today? Or put another way, if the paralyzed and the dead need raising, what does God need to raise in us, his people, to make us aware of who he is, the God of unlimited power, and how he works and how he wants to work in us. So the next point is simply called raising saints. What does God need to do in us? Surely we need raising. Surely there is growth and an encouragement needed, encouragement needed for you and I to grow and be more like Christ. Everybody agree with that? We're in the same boat. And I have no doubt when it comes to our emphasis this year, which is what? What is it? Outward with a mission. And then it's very specific emphasis inside of that emphasis where each of us are trying to learn how to share the gospel with another person. In that specific case, in that specific emphasis, I think there are typically three kinds of people, maybe more. These are the vast majority of people. The first, there's a group of people here, and I've talked to some of you. You're excited. You love sharing the gospel. You're excited to learn more about sharing the gospel, and you are ready to go. Then there are some here who are paralyzed, like our gal and Lita. You say to yourself, I, I can't see myself doing that. Ugh, I'm not excited about that. Ugh, why do we have to read a book? I want to do something else in community group. I mean, you're squirming, you're getting around. I, and look, I get that. I get that. It's very normal. This is not condescending talk to you. This is normal human transformation as a believer to feel that way. So we always normalize struggle, but we never justify it and say you're okay to stay right where you are, right? So it's one thing to be paralyzed and admit it. You got a chance to walk. Then there are some who are dead. And what I mean by that, not dead in terms of they're not saved, but they literally are saying, they probably had told anybody, I ain't doing it. Uh-uh, 
No way, no how. Reminds me of a story that Jenna would tell often when she spoke at family life. And, and that is, she's in high school right before she goes off to college that summer. She lived at Virginia Beach. And Campus Crusade comes to town. And they do an outreach on the beach. And her and her friend are sitting there and a couple crusaders come over and try to talk to her about the Lord Jesus. And Jenna says, I've already done that trusting in the Lord Jesus thing. And as they walk away, very nice, Jenna tells her friend, I would never do that. What they're doing, sharing the gospel. My encouragement to you is never say never. Within a few years, she had met me, come on staff, and for the next 18 years, all she did was share the gospel. God has a sense of humor. We don't see it sometimes. So in light of all that, let's look at four quick applications that I think will help us move forward and outward with the mission from this text. The first one is the transformation of Peter. I hope by this time in your walks with Christ, from being in this church, I hope that you understand we're all on a journey to mature in Christ's likeness. Some of us at the beginning of that journey, some of us in the middle, and some of you old as dirt like me, and you're sort of at the end of that thing, and you're wondering, I ain't really matured as much as I thought I would mature, but I'm still in the journey, thank God. That journey is called sanctification biblically. And what I love is how the scriptures over and over and over again sort of reinforces us not only the reality of that journey, but the struggles of that journey. And they use, it uses real people, right? In real life situations that we look at and go, golly, they're just like me. If they can keep growing, I can too. Peter is one of my favorites in that category. We know he certainly has gone from denying he even knew the Lord Jesus in the garden to the opening chapter chapter of Acts where he is preaching boldly and profoundly and with power. But as we take a deeper dive here, we see Peter performing miracles that imitate two miracles that Jesus actually did. The healing of Aeneas echoes Luke 5, where Jesus heals a paralyzed man by the words, rise and pick up your bed. And the healing of Tabitha echoes Luke 7, where Jesus raises a dead man with the words, I say to you, arise. So Peter, in this transformation, he's not only preaching like Jesus, but here we see him speaking and acting like Jesus, And then in chapter 10, we're going to see him actually thinking like Jesus in the sense that Gentiles, God loves Gentiles too. And in some ways, this is what God wants to do in all of us, that over time in this journey, he is squeezing us so that we Act like Jesus, speak like Jesus, preach like Jesus, and think like Jesus. Especially in the area of sharing the gospel. In this journey, it won't be instantaneous. It's not in Peter's life. But it will happen over time. And here's what I'm amazed at, how patient God is with us in that journey, even Peter. 
So we have the transformation of Peter. Secondly, I think a great takeaway for us is the healing sanctification leads to gospel penetration. So in our text, we have two folks healed in our passage. No doubt they were grateful. That's got to be an understatement. But I guarantee you this, thousands of times, no doubt for the rest of their lives until their final death, you think they went around and told that story? Jesus healed me from being paralyzed and Jesus rose from dead. How many of you think they did that? Or did you just keep it to themselves? No, they told it. <clears throat> For us, when we come to Christ, here's the bottom line reality. The more healing that the Lord Jesus does in us, put it another way, the more change that he brings about in us, the more we'll want to tell others of the Lord Jesus Christ. No change, we keep our mouth shut. The more he changes us, the more we'll speak for him. Put another way, we could say this, maturity in Christ leads to gospel proclamation. If we flip that and sort of state it in a more negative way, it might sound like immaturity in Christ leads to hiding the light of Christ under a bushel basket. Now, you may say, Jeff, I, I'm not immature. I know the scriptures. I walk with God. I have a faithful walk, but I ain't sharing the gospel. And here's what I would say to that. Look, I think this is true of me. If you want to know the specifics, come talk to me. I think I'm aware of a few. If you want to know a lot of them, talk to Monty maybe, right? And my immaturity. But we can be mature in many areas and still be very immature in some. And the Lord Jesus wants to change that. So if you're immature in sharing the gospel, it is something for you to ponder. Healing sanctification leads to gospel penetration and proclamation. Thirdly, and I love this one, probably my favorite one. Peter speaks, God works. In our text, Peter gave zero indication that he had any power or any control over anything that happened. All he did was speak. And 1,000% of the power came from who? No doubt. And when it comes to evangelism, let me remind you, Luke, in Luke chapter 10, quotes Jesus straight from, this is red letter stuff, folks. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in case we missed it, he re Jesus repeats the similar truth in John 6. No one, what does no one mean in the Greek? Man, y'all are amazing. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Then add to that, Romans 1.16, one of my life verses, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now you take that little trilogy or triology of verses and then add to it or bookend it or contrast it with 
what John Hopper, the guy that spoke to us, the book we're reading, the author of the book we're reading, reading as a church, giving Jesus away, he describes in this quote what he hears from the typical church-going Christian about evangelism. Here's what it says. This is from his book. I like to tell others about Jesus, they say, but I get too nervous. I don't know how to start the conversation. I tried once, but it wasn't well received. I'm afraid I won't be able to answer people's questions. I don't want to come off as a pushy religious type, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you think I'm reading your mail, no one sent me your mail, okay? <laughs> But that just describes the vast majority of Christians in America today, I think. So we got to start with reality. Again, it's not condescending. I'm not shaming you. I'm simply, let's start with where we are. I want to ask a question, though. Did you notice how many eyes are mentioned in that little description as if it were up to any of them? Eyes, or I, gets in the way of him. Say that with me. I gets in the way of him. Folks, yes, we're reading the book, Give Jesus Away. Yes, we all need to grow from where we are presently in this journey about evangelism. Yes, you get grace. Yes, you get truth. Yes, you get time. But at the end of the day, Here's what you've got to get down at the depths of your soul. One, you've got to learn what the gospel message is. And a third grader can learn that. You can do that. And secondly, you must speak this message of unlimited power to the lost and step back and watch what God does. And you won't see what God does on, the, on the, just the naked horizontal Get out of the way. Just get out of the way. Know the message. Speak the message. Lastly, I think we see the evolution of Peter. The evolution of Peter. Another word could be the preparation of Peter. I couldn't decide which word to use, but you get the picture. In our text, we see this evolution of preparation of Peter as God prepares him to finally... Embrace God's heart for the lost, despised, dirty dog, Gentiles. Now, why do I use that kind of language? Do I have something about Gentiles? No, I'm a Gentile. You're a Gentile for the most part in here. But that's what Jews historically thought about non-Jews. We've said Peter's on a spiritual journey to be like Christ. And the next step, as I mentioned earlier, and him being like Christ is to begin to think like Jesus. Verse 43 gives us a clue here. And, and if you didn't know what was coming, it would make no sense. But he says, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, a tanner in that culture is not something you go to like a salon to make your skin darker, Okay. It's a person who makes things out of animal skins. It's nasty, it's stinky. They made them 
uh, locate them out of town instead of in town. It's, it's, it's horrific and nasty. And according to rabbinic law, not God's law, extra added on law, they were unclean and no serious Jew would ever be caught in a tanner's home. Matter of fact, the rabbinic law said that a wife could sue or divorce her husband if he became a tanner. But what's ironic is because we know what's coming in chapter 10 is on the rooftop of this Tanner's home, our gracious and patient God is going to communicate with Peter and liberate him from his rigidity and his pharisaical beliefs about what was clean and what was not clean. Leading him to see the love of God for the Gentiles. Again, the patience of God, because lodging at this despised, dirty Tanner's home was the next step in his journey to learning to eat and embrace and loving a once hated Gentile. What I want to ask you this morning is what is your next step? Where are you this morning? What is it that you heard this morning that disturbed you about you, not about your neighbor, about you, that confronted you about you, that convicted you about you? Are you paralyzed? Are you dead when it comes to evangelism? What's your next right step? What's the next thing in God's patience yet perseverance of chasing you wants to do in you when it comes to the gospel and going outward with the mission. Take a minute to consider all that. Stand with me if you would this morning. <clears throat> Lord, we come to you this morning as a group of believers. Some of us are young in our faith. Some of us are old in our faith. Some of us are more mature. Some of us are less mature. Some of us are more mature in some areas and not as much as others, vice versa. But none of us are through growing and changing. And the reason is we're not dead yet. 
And so as we as a church fight against being comfortable and resting on our laurels and becoming spiritually inbred and rottening from the inside out, and, and, we, and we are depending on you to equip us, train us, to speak like you, to act like you, and to think like you, especially in this area of evangelism. I pray you do a work. I pray your spirit would identify where we're at, where we need to go, and then how we need to get there. Man, that's beautiful. It's beautiful because of how you do it tenderly. You convict us, but you have your arm around us. You're always with us. You're so patient. It's layer by layer. Move us forward collectively as a body and individually based on where we're at. And everyone said, amen.